For too many years, families of children with devastating illnesses have felt helpless as they watched their child suffer. Today, they're taking matters into their own hands and finally finding relief, treating their child with cannabis. These are their stories. Family and friends, welcome to another episode. Hello, hello, hello. I hope everyone is doing well. Yeah, I hope everyone out there is happy, safe, and healthy. Uh, today, guys, we have a truly exciting episode, and we are so fortunate to have one of the most influential men in the cannabis and hemp industry. Uh, he is the founder and former chairman and CEO of Canopy Growth Corporation, core chairman and passy of Martorello uh, Technologies and co-founder of Rockify's and Better Software. He is currently on the board of directors for MindMed, and uh, you probably have been hearing about him in the news as of late, working with mushrooms. And so we're looking forward to speaking with Bruce Linton, yes. all the way from Ottawa. Welcome. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Hello, guys. Good to you. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. I know you have a busy schedule trying to change the world. So thanks again for coming. No problem. You know, if you just, even though we're all sort of sitting still in our geographic okay, greater extent than we ever thought we would, the world hasn't stopped sort of having things happening. In fact, so many areas it's gotten faster. So yeah. it kind of, them, I would say, heads down working harder maybe than I have been in some time. Yeah. Nice. So how are you and your family doing uh, during these t- interesting times? They're almost 50 years younger. Oh, really? <laughs> and they're like, seriously, how'd you get so much younger? I said, well, I now behave like a five-year-old. <laughs> and what I mean by that is like, uh, I only control two things when I go to bed and what I eat. Mm-hmm. And uh, I lose my mind occasionally over both of those. And every once in a while, I lay down on the floor and kick and scream for really small reasons, like my shoelace breaks or something. <laughs> um, and it's just because COVID puts you in that state where you every once in a while, yeah, you, lose you, your shit. you just got to lay on the floor, stomp your feet a bit, <laughs> lose your shit, and then get back up and go. Um, That's so true. So, Seriously. You know, it makes you very young if you embrace being five. Yeah, we're working with it. <laughs> Don't yeah. fight it. Just lay down, kick your feet, scream a little bit. You feel way better. Yeah. Because there are, there are definitely those days where you're like, yeah, it's rough. nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it. Just do a good job of it. Oh, my God. You're right. So a uh, question for you is this, you know, what got you interested in the cannabis history? Like, what were you doing prior to that? And then what made you say, you know what, I'm looking into this industry. Or I want to get involved. Um, so I um. I spent the prior 10 or 15 years working, creating various tech companies, but I don't know how to code. So, and I give you that in that um, knowing how to implement an opportunity is different than recognizing an opportunity. And so um, when it came to cannabis, I was probably one of the few people who had never purchased cannabis that started a cannabis company. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I was cheap, not a non-consumer. <laughs> um, but um, I really wasn't like a uh, activist, and I, I appreciate the people who made a difference. But what I saw um, in Canada was that there had been about a 12- or 13-year window where the courts had made it required that there was legal access to people, but political will had not moved anything. It just was sort of a stagnant, challenging bunch of legal stuff. And at that time, we had um, kind of like a Republican conservative uh, leadership, and um, they were starting to get some friction from the police, which they're getting again now over 
essentially all hallucinogenic banned items because the cops find it completely ridiculous that they were trying to arrest people for growing cannabis or having cannabis when we had a medical system let you grow or have cannabis so they couldn't tell who's a good guy or a bad guy so they just quit trying and the leadership of the country needed the police officers to be happy because if you're a Republican or a conservative and the cops aren't happy, you know you're out of alignment with the people who vote for you because they have gray hair and like cops. Mm. Um, and so my view was that um, those triggers meant there was going to be something new coming and I should look at it because quite a lot of people like cannabis. And um, that was the simple analysis that I went through and I asked about four or five people, would you like to do this with me? And all of them it's a stupid idea, very bad idea. You're going to get in business uh, and you're going to have conflict with criminals and you're going to get in trouble. And da, 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 da. Well, um, I don't think it's a stupid idea. And I think the fact that rational people are acting irrationally means that I probably won't have that many great competitors. I should for sure start one. Oh, wow. Oh. That's a good way and, to look at it. Um, then when I went to raise money, I made sure that I was super clean shaven, good haircut, <laughs> wore a suit, sometimes a three-piece suit with a white shirt, tie, and I would go to talk to them about cannabinoids and cannabis and, and capital, and I would be very clear that I was not the customer, I was the supplier, mm. and that it was legal. And the reason I did that is imagine if somebody was running a pharmaceutical company that made some kind of hallucinogenic product, and they came in high as a kite and said, our stuff's great, I'm feeling high. <laughs> yeah, uh, how no, would that work? Well, work. you don't raise money that way. And so um, for the first several years, it was a process of raise money, spend money, raise money, spend money. And... Um, over that course, I started getting more interested or more, I wouldn't say interested, um, I felt like the next part of the fight was my fight. And what I mean by that is there was unreasonable bias being applied by people who were reacting without thinking. Mm. They were saying, I don't like it. And I said, well, I didn't invent cannabis. I can confirm that. <laughs> and the only reason you might not like my business is because someone in your family or you is involved in selling illegal cannabis and that's going to be a worse business over time. So you don't like me because you think you're going to get worse Christmas or Hanukkah gift or something. That's got to be the reason you don't like me. And they think you're nuts. Um, but I said, otherwise, you're completely irrational. What you're saying is governments should ignore things. Is that your public policy view? Governments should ignore things. Mm. And so um, where we are now is cannabis is not being ignored in many countries. And the, you know, there's a conversation in almost every country about governing it. And what's happening is right behind that, in Canada, they made it so it was legal about maybe three weeks ago. A person went to court, and they have the right legally at a federal level mm. to have access to psilocybin or mushrooms for therapeutic benefit, And which means if there's one person, soon there'll be two, and there'll be many, and it'll become something that is governed. And if that's the case, the logic that says there's evidence that mushrooms, psilocybin help you, mm. I think they'll say, well, there's evidence LSD might help you for certain circumstances or ketamine or 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 and so i think the rate at which medical access and i'm not advocating everybody get high and go to work i'm saying medically to make it so that symptoms that are causing a diminished quality of life can be mitigated yes that should be something that you can't ask a government to ignore and you should be pissed off if they do yeah wow now so you've been in the industry for what about 10 years now uh, I started walking around with that idea in late uh, 2012. Yeah, so eight eight years, going to be nine soon, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, there's a lot of people who did a lot of fighting mm -hmm. to get us to where we are. And, and I always try to um, 
salute. And some of them say, well, you know, you monetized and made all the money off our back. Well, that's probably true, but it wasn't my intention. Yeah. What I did is um, helped win an argument they were having for a lot of years. And the argument simply was, this is available. You can let people get it from an unknown source, which means it has no certainty of safety. Yeah. Exactly. And its price is very exploitive. Mm. Or you can regulate it and let it become safe and you can then use the income off of that to go and educate doctors. You know, you can pay. True. We spent hundreds, millions of dollars going to see physicians with data, like over 70 uh, studies that we would reference why cannabis could be in various THC and CBD combinations used for certain indications. Mm. And I guarantee you that um, if you didn't create a business, you wouldn't have that kind of money and you couldn't go see doctors. And if you didn't go see doctors, the gatekeeper was always going to be the doctor. And in the absence of any good information, they're going to say no. And so if you want to win the argument, we all work together. But I think we did a lot to pay for the education of the points of reference called the medical system. Yes. And I think that is a critical step because in every country, cannabis regulation starts by parents with a sick kid fighting with the government. Yes. And the government invariably loses that fight in the public eye. Then it gets handed over to regulators who make it hard to get at, and then doctors say no. And until big companies get formed and actually push those second two stages, being able to have a right that you can't access is not helpful. True, true. Well, since you've been in the industry, what is it that you like and dislike about it? I like, um, I like a lot of things. I like giving people tours to say, like, here's how it all fits together and works together. And I like when they got to the point where – it was no longer about growing cannabis. It was about the cannabinoids inside what you grew. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we know so little about so many of them that there's so much to do. Um, I really like the fact that you could have a PhD scientists working right beside somebody with a lot of tattoos who knew a lot about growing and had a pretty scratchy yes. voice. Nice. Um, Diversity. And that if you did it right, they were, they were colleagues, peers, and friends. Um, that's a pretty cool work environment. Uh, I would say I like the fact that you can go and take this push and have a discussion in Germany and Italy and uh, Netherlands and New Zealand and Australia and Colombia and Canada. You know what I mean? Like this is like it was the topic for a long time and it was a good thing to sort of advance it. Um, what I didn't like is a lot of people who obviously just want to be a bit more rich so they can do something. I don't know what they want to do with their life. Like um, there's a lot of people who made the name of a company, went and got money, sold their stock as quick as they could a bunch of people who didn't know better got stuck with a crappy stock, and that person was off with a couple million or five million or ten million bucks. And I don't know what they do. Like maybe they buy a boat and they call it ripoff. Um, but like it's just that's the worst and most distasteful thing because um, even though I made a good rate of return in my company, everyone had equity, and everyone who worked there the day I was uh, fired. There were 200 people, over 200 people, I believe, that were millionaires because they chose to come to work for us. Wow. And so um, one of the things that goes, you know, you guys wanted to talk about was inclusion and racial diversity and things like that. And there's, yes. there's lots of good thought about how do we change the color and sex of the person who's in charge. That's a good argument. You should have that topic. That, that's for others to discuss and debate because there's lots there. But... I still think that as you go down the org chart, it disproportionately reflects people who have not had access or advantage of income 
mm-hmm. and it could be on their sex or it could be on their their uh, you know visible uh, minority status or other things. Mm-hmm. And if you don't include those people in the economic opportunity by giving them a chunk of the company for showing up and then more for staying and being good, I can tell you, you know, some of those people I described who became millionaires were senior growers or who started off as junior growers. Mm. And if, if, if you guys came to work for me and all of a sudden because you were good and you showed up and you worked hard and you all of a sudden this year the stock would be up, which it isn't this year in that company at least, but if it were up <laughs> and all of a sudden you said, shit, you know, this year we just made two times our salary and our stock options. You know how much difference that makes? Huge difference. Yeah, it does. It means you change how you plan paying for school or change how you plan for where you live. Um and so those gains only happen if the mandate of the companies in the sector are to treat it as an inclusion sector, not just an inclusion of who's the, who's the boss who gets all the dough. No, no, no. It shouldn't be a debate about who's the boss who gets all the dough. Everybody should get a slice. That's true. So going into that part, then, do you think social equity can be something achieved in this industry? 100%. 100%. Everybody, every marijuana company in every state should have an obligation to have a comprehensive equity inclusion program. And it either has to be a profit sharing and or a form of uh, option, which is essentially saying you join today, you have a right to buy the stock in the future at today's price, which is pretty logical because if you come here and you work really hard with me, we both created value. And so we should all get a share of that. And if they, the state or the provincial government said they must be implemented and they can't be at a ratio of uh, greater than 10 to 1, meaning the top dog can't have 10 times more than the bottom dog. A lot of people say, oh, that's this or that. You know what it is? It's the way economics have to work for social inclusion. Otherwise, you just made somebody rich who's a different color or sex, and nobody else who's in the org chart did any better. Fantastic. Mm, Total failure. you got to do both because that may affect, right? Like if you put the right person in at the top and they had this obligation, it may affect who really wants to work there. Then you start to have like – uh, a little bit more differentiation on well, I really like working at this one because it's so and so runs it, and we get this uh, we get this equity program, but they also give us uh, lunch on Fridays. I don't know, whatever you want, but you do need to think about a texture of inclusion rather than just changing the name and the color at the top. Now, do you consider that as part of your criteria when you're evaluating a company that you want to invest in, or you th- or companies that need that have opportunities to grow? Like they should use that as a criteria, as one of their criteria. So everyone I talk to, I talk to them about stock option granting and do you agree with doing this? Because what I'm describing to you apparently is the worst way to do it. If you, if, if you asked um, analysts for like Wall Street or Bay Street, they would say, well, in the eyes of shareholders, that looks expensive because you're giving away the company. And then I would say, well, then those are dumb shareholders because what I'm doing is I'm getting people to make the company worth more faster because they're motivated. They're aligned. They show up at work and treat each other as peers. Mm. And so um, what I'm describing is considered an extraordinarily not right way to do it, but a lot of tech companies sort of do it. Now, the good news is if you work at a big tech company and you have a computer science degree, you'll get, a, you'll get that. Maybe if you're a manager, you'll get that. If you're a person going around making sure the building's clean or safe, you probably don't get any. You should get some. Okay. So... How many the companies that you evaluated? Do you notice um, that they invest heavily on the marketing side or the R and D, or it's just mm-hmm. top heavy? Because I've noticed that a lot of companies um, haven't been in an industry working with some companies and looking. I'm like, you guys got a lot of t- 
top heavies. Like, so where is the money going? Is it going into the R and D? Is it going where it needs it to make sure that you get the right product on the shelf? Do you see that? Mm, I'd say it's kind of like meeting people. They all have their own personality, mm-hmm. right? Um, some drive hard on science. Yeah. Some mm-hmm. drive hard on brand development. Some drive hard on, you know, um, events orientation. And I would say that that's okay because you know. If we all had the same company, we wouldn't necessarily agree that that's the right company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are some that have been, right? You can you can say, well, I'm in the recreational business or I'm in the medical business. I think that's actually monkey business because I say that in that um, they're playing around. Really, what you have to be to be in either of those is if you want to have a durably different good. Like if I want to sell you something that you're willing to stand in line to get, and you would only go to one store if that's the only store that had it. What I can't do is just put a cool label on it and say that it's cool. What has to be is it has to be in there and it has to be differentiated, meaning science either figured out a way to make it more effective or figured out exactly what it affects, how often you have to take it, the format of delivery. There's something unique Mm. and that that science then will cause loyalty because loyalty is that you know you're going to get an outcome you really desire, like, and it's going to happen every time the same way. And in medical or rec, it's the same, right? Like you don't walk into a liquor store and say, how strong is the vodka today? (laughs) <laughs> that's true right like you don't do that no you don't walk into the pharmacy and say is aspirin okay today is it, is it like a little weak or a little strong um so you need to know that science and process result in that now if the aspirin made your headache worse you probably wouldn't buy it very often but if it made it better you'll buy it mm. and so i think that that um how you take science and put it in place is very different across the companies but in the absence of any science what you're doing is selling uh, a commodity in a sense. Mm. And I realize it's different than say white sugar, but I've never seen a family get in a fist fight over which brand of white sugar they bought. <laughs> no, that doesn't happen. Yeah. So, uh, my... Oh shit, honey, you bought that kind of white sugar. I'm moving out. No, that did not happen. <laughs> no, my question for you is like, um, with the hemp industry, we interview a lot of, uh, business owners and some of them are saying that this, the industry is getting saturated. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's hemp is a funny thing because probably what you mean is they they are the type who are growing it so they can extract CBD. Yes. And they are they were correct a while ago because in 2018 when it was a permissible activity to plant hemp, the only song playing on the radio at that time was CBD, 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 CBD. Mm-hmm. And so what people did is they, they danced the song and they all planted a crop. Maybe there's a million acres of crop and almost all of it's for CBD. So those plants tend to be oriented having low THC, under 0.3, highest possible CBD, and they don't care that they're short and stout because they're not thinking about what else is in that plant. But the hemp plant that was popular in America for many, many generations and has been globally active that's not for CBD or not primarily for CBD, doesn't look the same. And, and it's tall, it's thin, and it has fibers that keep it from snapping over. It has this really strong root. And it has hundreds of purposes. Like you can use it to um, maybe make your next pair of jeans better with a mix of cotton. You can stretch it and twist it and put electricity through it. You can use it as an insulation. You can take yes. it and make fenders out of it. You can do uh, literally hundreds of things. You can think about how to make it into a pellet that would be used in an injection molding system and get rid of most or all of the hydrocarbons. So that part 
is almost still at zero, and that's because if you grew that plant right now in America and you said, well, I'm going to now send it to the factory, the processing plant that converts it to those things, they don't exist. And so what I started with collective growth is the idea of going and buying those technologies that exist around the globe but hadn't been legal in the U.S., assembling them in America and allowing America to have another crop called hemp, very tall, and processed into these things where we knock folks over who are just using hydrocarbons or just using cotton, and they're all not terrific for the environment. Interesting. So where do you see the role of intellectual property then playing in the cannabis and hemp industry? Well, so in the hemp industry, those processes I just described are full of existing and or potential intellectual property because how do you make a uh, pellet that can go into an injection molder and have uh, that unique to you? Uh, There's a bunch of IP around there. And so there's everything from how you harvest it to how you do it and stretch it and twist it and da-da-da-da-da. So lots of IP there. Um, the IP that's going to, I think, come out of cannabis, which is obviously a principally THC crop, but does have typically a proportionality of CBD, that's going to be on things like as simple in the recreational environment to how do you make a beverage that tastes terrific, is terrific, is clear, and is powered by two, maybe three milligrams of THC. So we tackled that at Canopy, and I think it's a very uh, unique process. But it could go all the way to um, what's cannabinoid, like there's a hundred-ish, cannabinoids in that plant we only get paid for two what's cannabinoid 84 do if you could isolate it make a bunch of it and give it to people Mm. does some of it work with animals better than humans like what about if you know the joke is you can make somebody have the munchies well if you can make somebody hungry when they're feeling nauseous that's an amazing achievement exactly you can also therefore probably figure out how to make them not hungry and so if you could actually find up uh, combinations of that to generate a appetite suppressant that didn't involve like a bulking agent like SlimFast, that is a massive value proposition. And so there's all kinds of things like that still to come out of. What do these other cannabinoids do? How do we make them in volume and things of that nature? Now, what are your thoughts about isolating them? Mm-hmm. I think it's possible from the plant, and then I think what you're going to find are there'll be synthetic platforms or mm. yeast or a variety of ways where they'll make for a while. They'll make a bunch of them because we really don't know enough about what they do. So I don't think it jumps to an immediate business, but it jumps to a lab supplying company. And then after a while, when they figure out which ones do what and what proportions, um, I don't. You, know, you might see that initially they're provided by uh, a lab, but I can see over time where the plants will be taught. Like a plant has a total capability of X. It could be all THC, it could be all CBD. Well, why couldn't it be none of those two and all the other things? So I think over time, oh, people may evolve that. the plants to make the singular um, cannabinoids they want. Almost like breeding? Yeah, breeding, and there's all this CRISPR Cross, technology, which yeah. is like a punch-out stuff. There's, there's a bunch of ways they get there. Some are more societally accepted, and some are more efficient in time. Currently, yeah. as you know, um, New York is possibly, it's been going on for about two, three years about going legal. Recreationally. Now, you, yeah, I know, right? Wait for it. Uh, are you working on any projects in New York? I know since you're not that far from New York where you're located, yeah. um, do you have some ventures in uh, New York? So I, I'm invested in companies that are around New York. I look at New York a lot. I was just on a call with people in the New York business. Um, I think every state's now think just like, COVID accelerated our adoption of things like Instacart 
you know, why, when I can't go to the grocery store, why can't the groceries come to me? Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, it's accelerated the consideration of recreational access because if I have no money and I need jobs and people aren't using all the buildings in my state, mm, what do I have as options? Regulate cannabis as recreational. Do we have any other good ideas that equal that? No. So um, the ability to get taxes, jobs, and use of uh, real estate, um, probably the best entity to do that that's currently not in play is that. So I think it's going to be a topic everywhere. It's not that they actually care about the regulation of cannabis. They care about the income and job generation. And at the end of the day, who really cares? Like if I take vitamins, I take them because I think they taste good. If you take vitamins, you might take them because you think they do good things for you. At the end of the day, we both took a vitamin. Exactly. You get the same outcome. <laughs> exactly. So, it's about the outcome. No. Yeah, definitely about the outcome. And, I, and I'm going to give you guys about another five minutes, and then i got a blast. All okay. right. Is that good? Oh, yeah, oh, perfect. Does that work? That, that works, works for me. So just want to get into MindMed. I know you're on the board of directors. Can you please tell us about the company and um, psychedelic medicine? Yeah. So, um MindMed is one of what I think about three companies that exist that are trying to do serious science so that they can harness the potential that's in already good molecules that are called psychedelics. I like to call them neuromedicines because calling them psychedelics uh, conjures up, you know, so Jimi Hendrix background yeah, music exactly. or something. <laughs> um, and so that's a burden that I don't think they need to carry um, because neuromedicines are going to go to people who have serious uh, mental state issues or addictive issues, and we don't need to give them the burden of also saying, well, you got you got off one thing by going on to another thing. You know, no. um, so the idea is in MindMed mm-hmm. that you take these good molecules and you involve them in ways that make them to be eligible for regulation by FDA, or you bring the dosage and framework so that you can actually say it works for this. So a specific example might be something called uh, a plant produces something called ibogaine, a plant from uh, Africa. Now, ibogaine, you might hear a, a celebrity going to a country to get unhooked from opioids. Mm-hmm. And they might be getting treated with ibogaine, which can have success at that, but it has two principal problems. One is it's apparently a horrific trip, and the second is that it can sponsor a cardiac event, which is not a good outcome. And uh, by the nature of its hallucinogenic method, it's not eligible currently for the FDA to really give it a good look. So what they did over the last seven, eight years in a science company was work on engineering out of the molecule the hallucinogenic effect and the cardiac effect. And now it's being trialed in humans in uh, Australia. And so the point of MindMed is to do that one and do many others like a platform where you take the almost like those things which we know have an effect on your psychoactive state but have been uh, put in a corner, find geographies like Switzerland or Australia where you can do the research and bring the results to the rest of the world. And when it works, people won't say, oh, yeah, but wasn't that banned that one time? They'll say, thank you for helping my brother get off of Oxy. And so things like that, I think, are going to be very disruptive and meaningful. And uh, MindMed, I think, is very... um, thoughtful in how they're pursuing these things and looking at options and work all over the world. How far away from, from them actually reaching the stores or being on the market? Yeah, these things are always a couple years out, 18, 24, 36. You never know exactly, but mm-hmm. the reality is is that if you're in trials in a country like Australia where humans may be getting a placebo or getting the product, that's, you know, like Australians might be 
you know, sound a little different than us. Maybe they're a little taller or something, but I think they're pretty similar. And so if it works on someone in Australia, rather than making all the people who want it to work, go to Australia. You might find that these trial results get adopted and, and fast-tracked. And you never know for sure, but um, we have enough serious problems for which the current set of solutions don't work. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are being a lot more thoughtful about mental health and addiction and things rather than saying, you know, you should really focus more. Like that that's not really working for anybody. No. Yeah, like I, I saw that they do stuff with they're looking at stuff at ADHD, which is so prevalent in yeah. children right now, you know. So yeah. Yeah, definitely. Instead of throwing the kitchen okay, sink out. Okay, we better hit one more and then I gotta go because I'm gonna bike home. Okay, no problem. My last question is this how many people have you mentored or do you mentor people who are looking to get into the industry and what kind of advice do you give them? Well, I think it'd be alarming if anybody let me mentor them. Um, <laughs> it, um, I would say that uh, what I try to be is a very active leader. And the difference between a leader and a manager is I have ideas, I say a direction I'm going, and a number of people always jump in to help me get there. Mm. And so I would say that I have created and continue to create a lot of opportunities for people to be excellent because I am good at saying I'm going over here and I don't know how to get there ever and people figure it out um, and so um, almost always the process to success is knowing why or where and then figuring out how why and where. so I would say that the why or where is me and the how is everybody around me and at the end when we get there who mentored who um, Got we just it. get there Thank you very much for that. Uh, we want to thank Bruce for taking the time out on his busy thank schedule you to, uh, to be on our show. Uh, we would welcome the opportunity uh, in the near future to talk to you again, do some follow-up. Or yeah, that will come out to you in Ottawa, you know, get on a vacation trip out there once the bands exactly. are lifted. <laughs> okay. Well, you guys, you guys know what it's like to try and get me organized, so just don't lose Olivia's email because trying to make me organized has been a <laughs> not, non-effective journey for my whole life. You know what? I'm the same way. Yeah, she's you the same. Me. I'm the only one that's organized here. I, you know what? It was a miracle in itself, so we appreciate that you taking the time out, so no worries at all because we figure you okay. were a busy man, so it's not a problem. But thank, thank you again guys. for your time. Have a great night. Be healthy, be good. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Yelland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, Your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. 
We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.